Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business. Come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Sarah Everest. Sarah is the strategy director at One Medical Group. And I met her, I think a couple of years back now. And when I first met her, I instantly wanted her to come onto the podcast. She was like, no, no, you don't want me. You want who at the time, I think, was the Deputy Chief Executive Officer, Dr. William Dawson. You want him. And Will came on the podcast. He recorded episode 27, Compassionate Leadership. It was an excellent episode, but I still wanted Sarah and she kindly agreed to come on. In this episode, Sarah shares with us her personal values that have driven her career to date We discuss managing performance and the difficulty with that, but how important it is to be open and honest and address the issues head on and seeking to understand. A key reason why I wanted Sarah on the podcast is because I feel like the culture at the One Medical Group is excellent. And I know a lot of people that work in that organisation and they don't say the word culture, but it's very clear that the organisation tries to place a lot of emphasis on looking after people. And my health coach at the time of recording works for One Medical Group. We talk about the future of healthcare estate because that's one of the areas that One Medical Group support and develop. Sarah touches upon the biggest difference that she has experienced from working with the public sector and then transitioning into the private sector and a founder-owned organisation. Sarah also gave us some productivity tips towards the end of this interview, um, another masterclass I really encourage you guys to listen carefully, so carefully to all of our interviews because they are sharing with us how they do business with the NHS, how they build their organisations, how they manage performance, how they make sure they are aware of their own personal values and how they let that guide them through their career. And also listen out for how I've met some of these amazing people. It 
This relationship started because Dr. Ashani Patel, who works for Lantern, invited me to the Lantern and Dr. Dr. Innovation Dinner. I sat next to Sarah. She introduced me to Will. And then Sarah kindly invited me to an awards ceremony. I'm friends with Sean that works at One Medical Group. I've been introduced to Helen Lowell. We've got Dr. Angela Goyle coming on the podcast as well. So... A lot of these connections come from very informal networking, people being really kind and offering me invitations and then say yes to the invitation. And that's how the relationship develops. So I hope you enjoy it. I know you're going to enjoy it. And I'll see you in the next episode. Hey, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. So we first met, if I remember correctly, at the Lantern and Doctor Doctor. No, is it Doctor Doctor? There was a d- innovation dinner in Manchester or Liverpool. Yes, I think was it after the oh, was it the NHS Expo? Yeah, one of those big events. I think yes, yes, it was. So we sat next, I think at one point we were sitting next to each other and we were chatting and I was like, oh, you've got to come on the podcast. And you said, no, 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 you need to get Will on. And Will Dawson, I can't remember his episode, I'll put it in the show notes, but Will came on. And Will's podcast was excellent and it really changed my questioning because Will shared more of himself and about his journey versus just work and our listeners really like that but I wanted you on and then like nearly two years later you have agreed to come on and we also kindly you invited me to your HS the HSJ awards yes yes which was last February just before everything yeah now yeah the part the HSJ partnership boards yeah that was a really good night yeah it was yeah yeah (laughs) it's a very good event and uh yeah no we had a good night yeah it was good so could you share with our listeners a little bit about what you do and who you work for Uh, yeah of course so um I work for one medical group um we are a health and well-being company delivering uh, services to the NHS. Uh, so we do a mixture of things. We do urgent care, primary care, dermatology and other bits of community services. But we're made up of a wider group. So there's four other um, parts to that, um, which I won't go into loads of detail because I'll be here all day. But <laughs> uh, we've got one wellness, we've got one medical property, we've got tech and then uh, one medical collaborate, which is consultancy and facilitation working with primary care networks so not dissimilar to some of the work um, that you do but in a different part of of the country Um, my role and some days I think what don't I do Um, it feels like that particularly at the moment because it's just so busy Um, but I cover strategy business development comms and marketing and then sort of partnerships relationship management which is broad. Um, I do have a broad remit, but I do have a really good good team, which makes my which makes my job that little bit easier. When you started at One Medical Group, what were you recruited to initially do, and how many? You said there's like four directorates. How many things did One Medical Group do when you first started? 
Yeah, so um, that was back in September 18. And um, interestingly, I'd met uh, Will at a couple of sort of market engagement events to do with, I worked for a different healthcare, independent healthcare provider at the time. And we'd met at a couple of events and he'd sort of approached me and said, oh, you know, we I think you'd be great. Your sort of experience is just what we're looking for. So I was recruited initially to very much focus on business development and growing the company. Um, and at the time, so property um, had been quite a large part of the of the organisation, but the first portfolio had just been sold. So property, what well, we weren't doing anything actively with property. So it was mainly the NHS service side, and then. The One Wellness and Collaborate, which was called One Workforce at the time, were there. But my focus was mainly on the sort of NHS service side. And did you find, did you know what you were doing when you first started? (laughs) I love that question. We were talking about this work the other day about, um, uh, I think it's called uh, the Peter Principle, where people are are promoted until they reach that level of incompetence, <laughs> which I find quite quite fascinating, particularly internal. So I was brought in with the view of a head of role developed into a director role. So I'd got, you know, I'd worked in healthcare for over 18 years. So I'd got a really good understanding of how the NHS worked. I'd worked in, um, I'd started as a nurse, so I'd done clinical, I'd done ops management, I'd done commissioning, public health business development strategy I'd got a really broad remit so from that perspective I did feel quite um quite competent what's been a big learning curve for me is working in an independent provider I'd always worked in the public sector um, so that was that was a big learning curve and you know it has definitely has its pluses also has its has its challenges as with any any organization but yeah I'd, um it had I'd worked mainly in the public sector, so so that was sort of a bit of a learning curve. But then the other areas was the other parts didn't know anything about property, healthcare property. I obviously have learned quite a lot about tech latterly. So it was the, yes, I'd got a really good understanding of how the NHS works, but those other bits that we were starting to bring in, they that's something that I've had to learn along the way. Okay. What would you say is the biggest lesson you have learned between the transition from the public sector into it's kind of well into the private sector yeah yeah and it and it's and it's an interest it's an interesting one because a large part of what we do is in the NHS so albeit we are we're we're an independent private provider but in the in the NHS a large part we do have a small commercial part our one wellness which which is uh, mainly private for me it's the um we can do things much quicker I've worked in quite big trusts, big uh, commissioning or provider organisation. And I guess decision to action time has always been quite lengthy. Whereas if I know that if I came up with a good idea, if I thought it was a good idea, and I went to Whirl as CEO, I think we should do this. You know, we could pretty much do that straight away if we felt it was the right thing to do and was going to improve patient care, was the right thing to do for our people and for, for the company. So... For me, it's that that ability to innovate quickly and to do things much, much quicker. Um, What's been different is, um, and probably again different now I'm on the board, but working for owners. So being part of an organisation that is founder-owned versus a 
uh, an NHS board or a CCG board. Again, it's very, very different um, and you're managing different expectations. But like I say, it's great that you can get things done much, much quicker. So when we first started talking today, I said, I feel like this podcast could be sponsored by One Medical Group because unknowingly, I've got a lot of my built, a lot of my network with colleagues of yours. And what comes across kind of loud and clear is the wellness side of how you support your staff. And Will talked about that in his podcast. Can you describe the culture of One Medical Group? Yeah, definitely. I think um, we strive for a culture of one that focuses on our people and our our patients, one that's compassionate. I think what's interesting and um, challenging and something that we have to, something that we work through on a regular basis is because we've got lots of different services in different places, you get different cultures as with any um, any organisation or company company would. And, and we spend sort of quite a lot of time, particularly since um, obviously we had Will as a CEO, a new CEO last year. We've got we've had quite a lot of additions to our senior team, our exec team, and we've got a refresh strategy, is really making sure that people understand the values. So we've got three main values which are putting people first working together for a better future and they kind of underpin the culture that we are creating and and, you know we're on a we're on a journey um don't get me wrong it has its challenges and it's not perfect but I think it was I think and I don't want to misquote on a podcast but I think it was Richard Branson who said look after your people and your people look after your customers and I think for me that's really important and that's why you know our people whilst our don't get me wrong, our patients are absolutely important to us, but the people that work for us and with us, you know, they if we look after our people, then they'll look after our patients and deliver good quality care, which is ultimately what, what we want to do. And I think the pandemic, I mean, we, we were reflecting on it. We had a bit of an exec away day a couple of weeks ago. And we were reflecting on this, that I think we've almost taken for granted that we throughout the pandemic, all our teams have continued to work day in, day out, providing the same great care and have just got on just got on with it, even when they've had team members shielding or having to isolate. At no point have we not been able to deliver any of the services that we were commissioned to deliver. And I think that is such a credit to the individuals that we that we have working, working for us that it's just it, it's it's been amazing really. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, there's been times when it's challenging and we don't always get it right. But then uh, I think having a compassionate culture is that we learn when we don't get it right. And it's not about we didn't get it right, who who got it wrong. It's, well, yeah, let's look at what didn't work and what we can improve upon next time. Thinking about COVID and when we're recording this, it's very exciting. We're coming up to, well, we are in May. Uh, things will unlock even more. But when you think about maybe the next 12 months, what are you guys thinking about regarding contingency, managing, workforce, maybe everybody's been in reactive mode and how are you going to manage people's energy and stuff moving forward? Have you have you guys been thinking about that or is it just heads down to what is right in front of us? No, we've, we've very much been looking at that and I think what's essential going forward is 
is resilience of our people. People have been sort of described really resilient. But everybody kind of has their limits, don't they? You can you can keep doing the same thing day out. And uh, I hope things like you know people being able to do more and connect more with with people will will help. I know I've personally found the last lockdown absolutely loved. You know, it was a bit novel. The sun was always shining. Could work in the day, have a glass of something set out at night, and it was great. The second, the third one, sorry, one that was in January, was just like the weather's rubbish. I've got fed up of this now. I want to be able to see people. I want to be able to connect with people. So I, I just think people have it being able to connect again is is really important. And we've got throughout COVID, and we're continuing with quite a sort of dedicated program of well-being for for people, which includes lots of lots of different sort of initiatives and things that people can can do. And we've tried to again throughout the lockdowns do just little nice things for people. So we've sent out care packages, we've done vouchers. And what we're doing this time is giving each of our services some money so they can actually go out as a team. They can go out and, you know, have a meal out or a night out or do something that that they want to do. And that'll be different for each of the different services. I know at head office we're going to have a bit of a barbecue and a games evening, um, afternoon. And we've got a bit, as you probably know, we're on a farm and we've got... um, we're surrounded by fields, which at the moment are full of little little lambs, which is quite mm-hmm. cute. They're just crying out to play rounders. I love rounders. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it'll take me back to being at school. Let's let's have a games afternoon. So it's just finding lots of different little ways to keep people resilient. I think, and and we're also look, have been looking at a lot of our even our kind of frontline um, staff have been working remotely with offerings of, you know, the video and um, telephone consultations. And it's how we continue some of that to give people then that that flexibility and that almost hybrid working of office or service and then um, at home. Because I think what we've found from our sort of staff service and engagement is that people see find real benefits from a work-life balance perspective in that hybrid working. How, where you mentioned you've grown and added to your leadership team, how have you been embedding new members of the team when you've been working virtually and how do you get them to feel and fit into your culture when everything is so different to you, like normal business way of life? That's really interesting. And um, I had, uh, well, it was literally just, I interviewed somebody just before we went into lockdown who was coming into my team as um, sort of a head of business development. And um, she started on the 31st of March. And so we interviewed her face-to-face, but then had to completely onboard her virtually. And all her intro meetings with everybody were all virtual. And it was really, it, it was really, really funny because when we actually then went back into the office, um, it was probably maybe last summer, for a catch-up we were just chatting away and she went oh this is the first time I've literally met everybody face to face but we'd kind of forgotten because you were seeing people that often virtually but it wasn't like it, it almost hadn't hadn't affected that ability to connect albeit virtually and I think that's probably the difference of doing it by video like Teams and um, Zoom rather than telephone because you I think you really get to know people better and what I sort of put in for my team 
we've had two or three weekly check-ins. So Monday and Friday, we've sort of checked in priorities, check out on a Friday, how have you got on? And then Wednesday, we've done Wellbeing Wednesday, where people can talk about how they're feeling, do a bit of a temperature check, both in work and outside of work. And I think just having that regular connection within the team has really helped with that. And she sort of fed back that, you know, I haven't, I don't feel like a disadvantage because I've had to be, I've been onboarded and then continue to work virtually. So I think it's just been agile. I think we've, we've just got to got to a point, haven't we, where we just have to continually be flexible and respond to the, the situation in front of us. I think that's, we've learnt, we've all learned that if we didn't know it before, particularly these last sort of year, 18 months, haven't we, with, uh, with the pandemic. When you think about your career, so I think you said you started off as a nurse and now you've kind of gone, you're, you're a board member. What do you think it is about you that has managed to progress in the way that you have? Oh, good question. <laughs> uh, I think I'm really driven and I I suppose my I have two sort of main values that hold to myself. That's one kindness and the other is um, success. And I think having those two things, both kindness and success, has enabled me to progress, but not as a result of trampling on people along the way. For me, I've always, whenever I've left a role and moved on to a new role or left a company or an organisation, I've always made sure that um, I leave really strong relationships in place because for me, you never know, particularly in the world yeah. of healthcare, which is very small, when you need when you will need to connect with those people again. And I've had I've had people where I've worked with them in one organisation and then been in a different one and actually come across them in a different different area. So the fact that uh, being able to maintain those relationships has been has been really key. Okay. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is managing performance. So you've got a quite a big team and I work with a lot of clinical directors that just really struggle to, you know, when someone's not performing for a variety of reasons, they don't address it. They always want somebody else to address it. How do you address, sounds harsh, but what is perceived to be poor performance? Yeah, and I think, so So for me, I have two really good, really strong deputies. So I've got a head of business development and I've got a head of comms and marketing. And they, so, so they're my only two direct reports. They manage all the other people in the team, which make, does make my life a lot, a lot easier. So having, having people that I can trust to get on and do their job and then make sure other people are doing their job is re- really important. And, and I think where I have managed poor performance in the past, fundamentally is about being open and honest. And I think, you know, that comes back to, to my value of kindness, that it's being kind is not about, you know, be, always being nice. It's about being open and honest as well. And if you've got somebody who is poorly performing, for whatever reason, it's about having that open dialogue so you can really understand why that individual is is poorly performing. It could be for a variety of reasons and things that might be out of their control. But if you don't understand that, then you can't really put the right things in place to manage them. And I think, you know, we, we are, have worked 
in places in the past where poor performance hasn't been tackled. And then, it, you know, people do get promoted, incompetent people get promoted. And it's and it's then it, it's another people trying to compensate for that poor performance. And the only way you'll ever really address it is by just being open and having those conversations. It's not easy, though. Don't get me wrong. I've had some horrible conversations. <laughs> we all have. But um, it is interesting. And I think those tips are really helpful. I would say to people, you just want to try and knock it on the head and address it as quickly as possible. And I think people, you know, like you make, we make allowances for people because we're frightened of the, the perceived conflict. And you never want to, if you don't know the full picture, you don't want to make somebody feel like they're bad if actually they've got a really good reason for why they're not doing what you want to. And sometimes it comes back to the leader. Sometimes we're not clear in what we want somebody to do. So of course, they're never going to meet our expectations if we've we've been really woolly and vague, just avoid and I, and I think that's um that's absolutely true. And um there's a book that I don't know if you've read any of Brenny Brown's um yeah. where Dare, Dare to Lead and you know it is that you know the kindness part it's kind to be clear. It's about being you know giving that giving that clarity to people about what you expect from them helps with that because like you say if somebody doesn't understand what's expected of them if they haven't got clear objectives or they don't understand what they're striving to deliver how can they ever meet your expectations so you're absolutely right so you mentioned one of your direct reports is in charge of marketing and comms how important is that external facing marketing piece in helping you to win business Brand reputation is really, really important. Um, how we're perceived, both from patients and from the commissioners, from you know the people who buy our services, is really important. And making sure that we have not is is the narrative. Making sure the narrative about who we are, what we do, why we do it, is the correct one. is is really important. And we do we have in the past frustratingly be mistaken for one medical in America. So there's, okay. a, there's a, a company in America, a private company called One One Medical. And I think um, Rachel, our, um, one of our owners, she she said, I think they were cre- created at a very similar time to when we were. And we have been tagged in Facebook. You know, we, we've been, there's been comments that, that you know, it's private, private, this American private company want to take over, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not at all like that. I mean, we, we obviously are private, you know, we refer to ourselves as independent because it's, you know, it's, it better describes what we do, but, you know, we, we're, we're from Leeds, you know, that's where the company um, started. We're very much about, you know, improving lives of people. We're not a big American company with lots of private, privately backed, you know, equity firms, we are, we're very different. And I think getting that message across is, is really important. So you guys, so I think you said you provide support and consultancy to primary care networks. How have you built that relationship? And what does that relationship look like today? Yeah, so Caroline Day, who's our, um, she's our National Collaboration Director, um, that's her part of the of the organisation, and she, I mean, it's very much grown. I mean, she's done an amazing job growing it in the way that she has, starting off being very small. So it started off 
think it was back in, it was before I joined back in 2017 and it focused very much on workforce. So it was a lot of training and sort of facilitation. She went and did a management in practice event in Manchester. I think it was Manchester. It was sort of around the time that um, PCNs were starting to um, become established People coming to talk to her to say, you know, some of the things that you've been shared to speak, some of the things been sharing really resonate with us. Would you come and help us? Would you come and help us with, with two practices joining together? Or we're just starting to work out how we can come together as a PCN. So it's very much, she's gone and worked with a couple of um, practices and then it's grown and now she's working with um, ICPs over in the Northwest. And I, I think the last count, she, she works with practices and PCNs that cover a population of over about 3 million people. Wow. So, yeah, so she's she's worked really hard. And the thing with Caroline, she's going, she'd be very good on a podcast. <laughs> she, um, you guys should create your own podcast, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should, shouldn't we? Um, she, um, she's got a very good um, sort of compassionate style and her facilitation is excellent you know, she's very good at listening she's very good at help help getting people to solve their own problems and um, I think she's she's built on reputation which has been really good and I think it's really important for those people that don't work directly in, in primary care land the skills that you have just mentioned is that's how you win business that's how you win work and at the very very beginning when you hired her what was the brief? So, so Caroline, she's probably one of the longest standing uh, members outside of our um, co-founders. She has been with us. She told me the other day, because we said we were going to have a big celebration. She'll have been with One Medical 10 years next February. And I think she came as, oh, this is testing my memory skills, as patient services director. So very much the operational side of the um of the business and then she so she did that and then she moved into um HR and did a lot of sort of workforce and training and then I think saw the opportunity to actually have something that was more of a, a sort of a standalone offer which I think now it's kind of that hybrid it's it's that she does a lot of the external stuff but then a lot of it um supporting internally from a sort of development and transformation perspective as well so I think her role has um has been very varied over the last over the last 10 years. Do people in one medical group grow into established opportunities or do they spot the opportunities and grow into them? They create their opportunities, they create their job or is there a pathway? Can you say I am a receptionist and there's potential for me to go all the way up the management level? So I think it's both. I think there is, uh, I think Caroline's example is where she saw the opportunity and then grew the opportunity um, and developed the role within it. And then there is um, career pathways for some of, for some of the other roles. So you know if you are a receptionist or a healthcare assistant what other opportunities might be and it's something I know that um, our NHS services team and HR have been looking at and looking at roles that can be a little roles that are a little bit more creative as well that people might move into so for example our receptionist uh, we call them patient navigators and their role is not just the receptionist part, but also a sort of signposting and supporting the patient 
through their journey if they've come into the practice and come into a practice. But what we're developing, because um, we see a need for it within um, our services and, and a lot of them already have it, is the wellbeing coordinator role. So actually that would then be a natural progression with some additional training and development. Um, and I think that's really important that some people, don't get me wrong, some people just want to come, do their job, go home, know they've done a good job and go home again. Some people want to know where they can progress their, their career. So I think it's important that we have both opportunities. Could you discuss, probably should have asked this at the beginning, could you describe broadly your popula- the population that you cover? We're in um, six different geographies um, up and down the country, um, as far north as um, Leeds, um, sort of Yorkshire area, right down to Buckinghamshire um, and Bedfordshire. My geography is rubbish, but that's the I know that's the furthest south we got, and that's for the care um, sort of the NHS service side. For the property side, it's much broader. We've got a live project in over in Wigan. We've got one down in London and then sort of dotted in between so it's quite broad in terms of the patient side it's predominantly urgent and primary care so we've got a mixture of patients who are registered with us in our GP practices and then patients who come and use our urgent care services as and when they need them and depends on which service that is it could be either for a minor illness or a minor injury okay and I'm brand new. So when you talk about property, what do you mean? What do you what do you guys do? I, I'm, that's a... uh, we develop, we invest in primary care estate. So and we also do consultancy as well from that perspective. But broadly, we develop new builds. So if, if you've got a GP practice that is in, say, an old terraced house, it's no longer fit for purpose. And actually, they want uh, they want to move out of that, and they want a new build. We can we can invest and develop those. And what we're trying to do with that part is think um, a lot more innovatively and broadly. Our live scheme, Aspel in in Wigan, that is a health and wellbeing space. So it'll include the GP practice, but it's also got some of the community services in there. And the idea is that it, it can be developed into a space that's for for the local community as well. And then the other side is we, so we buy buildings off of GPs and then we lease them back to them. So what we're increasingly finding is there is a number of GPs um, or partners who no longer want the responsibility of owning a building. They might want to release the equity or they might be coming up to retirement and there isn't the succession planning because as we know, there's a declining number of GPs who want to be partners. So we buy their building, we take out all the hassle of owning the building and managing it, and then we lease it back to them. Do you think the future of healthcare and property has changed because of the pandemic? Or actually, we there still needs to be as many physical spaces as it always has been? So I think, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think... I think it will still evolve over time. So I think what we need from our property and our spaces, and, and this is something that we do look at, is, is ones that are fit for purpose for both the patients who are visiting them and the staff who are working them, so that they're much more responsive to those needs, which, which is more about redesigning space as well as, as much as building something that, that's new. I think there's a lot of healthcare estate out there that can be repurposed to do something different if you think of you know 
sort of community hospitals that may no longer be running as they used to be, or big acute trusts that have various bits of a state that isn't used in the same way anymore. And I think it's and I think it's how we think more creatively. And if you add in, if you if we add in local government and then the voluntary um, and charitable sector. For me, it's how can we work much better together to utilise the space in the most effective way. And that isn't, I think that is moving away from siloed buildings, but something that is a space that is much, much more beneficial to the people using it, whether that be the people that work there or the patients. So to close out this interview, could you describe to me what a really good day at work looks like for you? (laughs) Ah, oh, that's a really tough one because my job's so varied. So um, uh, it it could be a number of things. It could be, you know, if we if we've had a CQC inspection and it comes back good or better is is brilliant. If we, you know, if we've had some really good um, patient feedback about a service that they've that they've received. If we've been slogging really hard on a new tender or a um, a new contract, and we get the, you know, get that message through the portal and the letters to say, "Oh, congratulations! You've been awarded X contract." I mean, that's that's really good. So I think anything that involves success, really, okay. is, <laughs> and is really good. Or just you know that you know people, you know, if somebody does a good piece of work, or it's just. For me, it's that people, you know, see value in what's in what's happening, whether that's a patient or somebody that works for us. And I bet you get this question all the time because you're a mum, you've got dog in the background. How, what are your three productivity tips to have a productive day? Yeah. Turn your emails off. If you've got a focused piece of work that you need to do is turn your emails off because they're so distracting anything that can distract you whether it's phone or emails um, and and what I try and do from a work perspective (laughs) and we started this in the first lockdown and it and it it has its um sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and that's I think I called it no no meeting Wednesday or something so you have blocks blocks times when you don't have have meetings they've sort of crept back in so I do try and block out times in my diary to not have, have meetings and and for me particularly managing a, a son who's 15 this year who plays football and has various other activities managing a house a husband a dog have to just be ultra organized and remi- if there wasn't a reminder app in my phone I probably would forget to do half the things that that I have to do both um, in work and at work and I'm a bit old school. I love a list. I love a list. I can't. Ticking <laughs> off a list. Uh, something off my to-do list. Um, I was saying at work, at work the other day that, you know, don't get don't seem to get very far on my to-do list because I get so far and then another 10 things get added mm-hmm. to it. But that's the nature of the, yeah. the rock. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about One Medical Group, where's the best place to go? Um, either our social channels. So if you just Google One one medical group, don't get us confused with one medical group. I was just about to say the group. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so we're on Facebook, tw- all the Twitter, um, all the usual, and then our, our website as well. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, Tara. Bye. Bye.
you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. It's really, really funny. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.